This is John Farrell, Chris Mitchell, and Stacey Mitchell bringing you Building Local Power. Hey, John, you just came in my office and all of a sudden flipping through your phone, you had something extremely exciting to share. What's going on? I have seen the greatest cat videos, Chris. I have to show you one now. Uh, no, I actually don't think that's what we're talking about. Um, <laughs> this actually is relating to a big campaign that we've talked about before with Excel Energy. Uh, you have been trying to restrain me from going after some people that we might regard as trollish, but you caught sight of a very odd phenomenon uh, on our Facebook page. That's right, Chris. Uh, I was just looking at a response that I got back to some comments on our Facebook feed uh, about this discussion uh, around a, a bill in the legislature and somebody said, you have a good point there. And I think that might be the first time that's happened in the history of the internet. (laughs) Right. Someone who initially started off disagreeing with you. Quite strongly. So I'm Chris Mitchell with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, the first Mitchell's voice you'll hear on this call. We also just heard from John Farrell, who works on our energy work. Hey, John. Hey, Chris. And I want to bring in Stacy Mitchell, the other Mitchell, the Portland Mitchell. Welcome back to the show, Stacy. Nice to be with you. Stacy is co-director. She's technically our boss. So if we're fired next week, you'll know why. And also does all of our independent business work. I do the computer internet related stuff. And <laughs> yeah. Chris just does tech support. Thanks for hosting. <laughs> Chris, you shouldn't say and stuff. You should say what you actually do. I run the Community Broadband Networks uh, program, which increasingly does well when I'm gone for weeks at a time, which is giving me an identity crisis, clearly. But today, (laughs) we're going to build on John's enthusiasm and excitement for cat videos, also for the internet now being a force for good. We want to talk about a state that's doing some really great things on policy that's actually helping local communities to maximize their local resources, to be really great places to live in. And this is the first of a, of a few shows we'd like to do in which we pick a geography and we talk about uh, a number of policies that they've done over the years. Um, and to, to just foreshadow that, we know that we want to talk about North Dakota uh, because they have a number of really innovative policies that were really bringing benefits to them long before all of the uh, fracking and the oil boom. I think sometimes people misidentify a source of their their um, their strong economy as just the oil boom. Uh, but we're going to talk about three issues, uh, one from each of our programs. And I think, Stacy, yours is the one that really helps set a, a frame overall. Uh, what is Vermont doing to make sure that local businesses can really do well? Vermont has this great policy that I think every state should have. It's called Act 250, and it was adopted quite a long time ago, back in the 1970s, when the interstate highway was first coming through Vermont, and the citizens of the state recognized that that could lead to all kinds of development around the highway, and they wanted to think about what that development should look like, how it should be structured in a way that would be most beneficial to residents and to the local economy. And so Vermont adopted this policy, and it it is a, a policy that requires anything large. So if you want to build a big housing subdivision or a large store or a shopping center, anything that's over a certain size, you not only have to go through the local 
planning process in that particular community, but you also have to go through a regional review where all of the communities in that region review the project, recognizing that because it's large, it's going to have this effect on the whole region. Um, what's great about it is, uh, and, and I should say the review includes um, looking at things like how much tax revenue will this generate versus how much will it cost us to provide public services, what are the benefits to the community that come from this, what are the economic benefits versus some of the economic costs, that kind of thing, as well as the environmental uh, impact of a project. And what's nice about it is that it means that developers, and I'm thinking particularly of like big box and shopping mall developers, they can't come into a region and say to a community, hey, we want to build this uh, big store, and if you don't accept us on our terms exactly what we want to do, we're just going to build it in the next town over, and they can pit towns against one another. Vermont doesn't have that problem. And is the reason that they don't have that problem? Because basically, and it's a little bit odd, but there's no way for them to escape it. Because if they want to go anywhere in the state, then they, they have to go through this process. Exactly. And because it's it's the way it's set up is it's, uh, it, although it's a state law, it's actually carried out by these regional boards. And the boards are comprised of representatives of all the towns in a region. So it really makes uh, the communities in a region have to think together about what's in their best interest. We see a lot of development in other places where, yeah, this is good for this particular suburb, but it hurts the region as a whole. And this makes communities think, as I said, collectively together about what's really in their best interest. And it gives them leverage, because not only can they say no, but they can also say to the developer, uh, here are the terms. You know, Here are the things you need to change about this project to make it work. And they have the power to do that in a way that's very difficult for an individual community to do. It sounds like this uh, issue of development, retail development, Stacey, is a lot like the old uh, the prisoner's dilemma, right, where the only actual solution for the prisoners is to act cooperatively. But any one community, for example, in, in that prisoner development game could win by cheating on the other ones and offering incentives, for example, to a Walmart to come in. Uh, collectively, everybody loses if there's a lot of Walmarts. But if everybody stands together and has the same review process, then they can be successful together. That's absolutely right. And it goes in both directions in the sense that um, a community that looks at, say, a, a Walmart project and says, okay, instead of being, you know, 200,000 square feet, which is like uh, four football fields in size coming into a very small town, let's say, instead of that, we're okay with Walmart as long as you do a small store that's downtown. So you can be part of the community and you can compete here, but you just have to do it in a way that fits and doesn't overwhelm the local economy. And now, now, in most regions of the country, if you say that to Walmart, they say, no, sorry, we're just going to build in the next town over. And because we're going to build such a huge store, it's going to have this effect that's going to be for miles and miles and miles. As in, It's still going to kill off your local businesses, uh, e even if you don't take us directly. Um, and so it gives communities a lot of leverage. And the result in Vermont uh, is that Walmart has only five stores in the state, and three of those stores are in small existing buildings downtown. Uh, only two of them are sort of the more traditional kind of Walmart, and even those are smaller than usual that you see in other parts of the country. And this is true for all the other big box stores. They're in Vermont, but not in a way that just totally overwhelms the local economy. So they're part of it, but they're not this dominant force uh, the way they are elsewhere. And, and one effect of that is that Vermont has more small businesses per capita than any other state in the country. Let's, let's talk about that for a second, because 
I, you know, one of the reactions that I have to that is just thinking a small, a small business owner would be thinking, oh, like, you know, it's great that my, my large uh, competitors that would, that would come in and, and, and take over the entire economy that they can't come in. But is, is this a hassle for small businesses to go through? Well, in the case of Act 250, because it is only really triggered at a certain size threshold, uh, unless you're an independent retailer that's opening a really big store, it's probably not going to affect you. But I think your point is a good one. And there are certainly, um, in Vermont, is a place that has uh, a lot of laws related to uh, protecting the environment, making sure that their towns stay um, cohesive, that there's not a lot of sprawl. Um, they have a lot of regulations uh, around uh, historic preservation. I mean, there are a lot of different regulations and rules in Vermont. But what I think is interesting is that that the kinds of policies that they've seemed to have adopted, at least the evidence of the, you know, the fact that they have lots of small businesses and really have a growing number of small businesses and a very healthy local economy in that regard, the evidence is that their policies have been thoughtful and that even if there's a bit of a hassle that's an inevitable part of that for local business owners, what they succeed in preserving is an environment that's actually very conducive for local businesses. But when I look at some of the um, kinds of you know, publications that, that get a lot of headlines, sort of the, the best places for small businesses, the, the worst places to be a small business, Vermont never seems to, to do very well on those lists. A few years ago, there was a, a ranking like that that came out, uh, you know, which states are most friendly to small businesses. And, you know, Vermont was near the bottom of the list. They got an F. Uh, a bunch of other states got an F. Uh, and then at the top of the list, you had states like Texas, you know, which uh, there are very few regulations. They have very few, like, land use regulations and other kinds of rules. And uh, I decided to spend a little bit of time, like, actually dissecting that. And so I created some maps of the U.S. and it was that showed number of small businesses per capita and also the change in small businesses. So looking at over the last 10 years, which states are really seeing growth in small businesses. And it was fascinating because it was almost uh, in many ways a reverse, like Texas is one of the, you know, it's really right at the bottom in terms of being small business friendly when you look at, well, how many small businesses are actually there? And Vermont's at the top. And so it suggests that, you know, regulation isn't so simple, that the solution isn't about more or less regulation, but really what kinds of rules are you writing? And are you writing rules that um, actually create, a, you know, in the case of land use rules, a built environment that's very conducive to local entrepreneurs or are you, you know, by having no rules, creating a very sort of sprawling environment that for a lot of reasons works better for big national chains? It's an environment that local entrepreneurs have a very hard time getting a foothold in. Um, and I, you know, I think you really see that uh, when you actually look at the hard numbers. While we're talking about rankings, we're going to come back in just a second after this short, interstitial, non-obtrusive, non-ad thank you note uh, to talk about rankings in uh, solar PV, thanks to John. John. 
I just want to take a minute to thank everyone who's been a donor to ILSR. We really appreciate the support. If you enjoy this podcast and haven't yet become a donor, please consider making a donation to the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Your financial support not only underwrites this podcast, keeping it ad-free, but also helps us produce all of the research and resources that we make available on our website and all the technical assistance we provide to policymakers and citizens. Every year, ILSR's small staff helps hundreds of communities challenge monopoly power and rebuild their local economies. So please take a minute and go to ILSR.org and click on the Donate button. That's ILSR.org. And if making a donation isn't something you can do, please consider helping us in other ways. One great thing you can do is to rate and review this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Ratings help us reach a wider audience, so it's hugely helpful. Thank you. You can also rate and review Community Broadband Bits or Local Energy Rules, which is John's podcast, and he did not go with rules with a Z the way that I advised him to. But speaking about these rankings, John, tell us uh, what we should be looking at in terms of an important ranking coming out of Vermont with uh, clean energy. You know, as Stacy was talking about the sort of unexpected nature of digging into these state rankings, um, there's a report out by Environment America that looks at the rankings of most metropolitan areas in terms of the amount of solar energy that's installed. And Burlington, which is, uh, of course, up near the northern end of Vermont and the northern part of the country, ranks 11th in the United States in solar PV capacity per capita, uh, which means that it's one of the solar hotspots in the country, despite having one of the weaker solar resources. I think the lesson with Burlington is similar to Stacy's experience with retail development, which is that it's really policy that helps set up the appropriate environment for the growth of local clean energy and not as much uh, the quality of the resource. John, Vermont is located pretty far north and seems like a part of the country that I would not think of as being so great for solar in particular. What are some of the policies that they've used to try to unlock um, this important technology for our energy future? There's a couple of different policies I think that are particularly important. Um, one key thing to understand is that most energy policy is generally set at the state level. So when we're talking about Burlington, Vermont being very successful with solar, we're really talking a lot about the state being very successful in setting goals. Um, there's a couple of things. One is that the state requires that utilities that procure re- renewable energy like solar uh, do so from small scale sources. And there are about 20 states that have similar policies across the country. Um, A second key piece is having what's called shared renewable energy or community renewable energy, which is to say that for folks who don't have a sunny rooftop, that there's a way for them to invest in a solar array, maybe down the block or maybe on a church nearby or in an open field near town uh, to get a share of their electricity from solar without having to buy it themselves. So those are kind of the policies that support that kind of uh, distributed solar development that allow Burlington to develop a lot of solar in a way that other cities might not. Uh, despite not having as sunny a locale as other places that are very successful with solar. Does Vermont stand out in terms of these policies? I mean, I I think there are other states that have some level of that, but is it when you just look at them from a policy perspective, are they beyond everybody else or uh, are there other states that are in a similar place? There, there are other states uh, that do pretty well. Uh, ILSR just released what we call our Community Power Scorecard uh, last month. Uh, it does a state-by-state ranking, and Vermont scores kind of in the upper middle of the pack. 
uh, but along with a lot of other states that have similar or effective policies. I think there's two other things going for Vermont that is not that are not happening in other states. One is that they have uh, a presumptive approval for small-scale solar that they don't have in other states. So if you put a solar array on your roof, normally you would have to go through a regulatory process to get approval to connect that to the grid. And what Vermont has adopted statewide is uh, a policy called presumptive approval, which means that if nobody objects, like the utility company or anybody else, within 10 days, then that project is approved and you get to install it and connect it to the grid. And so that really helps streamline the process. The second thing that's going on in Vermont is that in, in many states, in, in 30 different states, like Vermont, utilities are monopoly corporations. And so they have a reserved service territory, a reserved population that uh, can only buy power from them. And it's the only state that has a company, Green Mountain Power, that is a benefit corporation. It's registered as a benefit corporation. And I think that really changes uh, the perspective and the service that you get from that kind of company uh, that can focus more on things that customers are interested in. For people who don't know, what is a benefit corporation? The, the way I like to describe it, uh, well, there's a couple ways to describe it. One is in an interview I actually did with Mary Powell for our Local Energy Rules podcast a couple years ago, she described wanting to cha- change the company into the Ben and Jerry's of the utility sector. So if you think about Ben and Jerry's, it's about eating delicious ice cream, but that that money is going to other social goods. And that's the same po- idea here with the utility company is that they can think beyond the bottom line of its shareholders to the environmental benefits, to the benefits of the communities that they serve. And you definitely see that in the kinds of things they're doing. They are increasing compensation for customers that have solar on their rooftop when in other states, those utility companies, same utility companies are fighting to reduce that compensation. Uh, They've mapped out their local grid system to make it easier for people to identify where they can install solar. And they're also financing things for customers like batteries or uh, cold climate heat pumps, ways for them to save energy or to become more resilient and that the utility is helping provide to those folks. They're helping to them to pay for them over time. What's the origin of that? I mean, there's so many utilities that you've documented that are, you know, absolutely dragging their heels and worse when it comes to enabling their customers to do distributed power themselves. How is it that Vermont has this utility that's gone completely in the other direction? Where does that, is it just a matter of who's in charge? I, I think it is. I'd like to joke that it's in the ice cream uh, up there. But um, it, I think it really, you know, when I talked to Mary Powell, who's the CEO of Green Mountain Power for our podcast, it was very clear that it wasn't an externally imposed thing. Like she became the CEO and was very interested in kind of a customer centric culture change at the utility company. And as they were thinking through this, they were thinking, one way that we can do this is by becoming a benefit corporation, by showing our customers we care about more than just our bottom line. And so I I think that is uh, both exciting that a utility company can come to that realization, but also a little frustrating when you realize there's not necessarily anything that we can do from the outside to get other companies to do the same. Are there other large uh, electric companies in Vermont that are fighting against this? I mean, is, is this a kind of thing where you might just have the right people and they don't have to worry about uh, the kind of people that we would have to worry about in Minnesota if Excel wanted to oppose this or, or was like setting a different standard? Or Vermont is special in terms of being fairly distributed, doesn't have large cities. Um, it's very good for the kinds of policies ILSR wants to have because it's very um, not centralized. And yet... Um, I'm trying to figure out what lessons we could really draw for other states. I think that's a really good question. You know, the, the challenge here as is present across 
almost the entire country, which is simply that because there's no competition, being a benefit corporation isn't a competitive advantage for Green Mountain Power. It's not like they're going to get more customers by doing this, unfortunately. There are plenty of utilities in Vermont, other utilities, uh, different kinds of utilities with different ownership structures, uh, as well as other utilities similar to Green Mountain Power that oppose a lot of the things that they're doing, that don't offer them to their customers, that have testified in front of public regulators against the kinds of things that Green Mountain Power is doing or the kinds of policies that they have favored to allow customers to produce more of their own energy. So I think that offers a couple lessons. One is that it's not necessarily something special to Vermont because these other utilities in Vermont are not doing these things. And so I don't think it means that you have to be in a particular state, in a particular geography or particular demographics in order to have this kind of customer focus. And in fact, there's a lot of discussion about energy as a service instead of energy as a commodity in the electricity business. And there's a lot of utilities out there, at least speaking from the top, like they care about this kind of thing, that they want to be customer focused. But what we've seen is that when the rubber hits the road, when we get to where regulations are being set or when we're at the legislature, those utilities are pretty consistently against the policies that would be considered customer centric, like Green Mountain Power has supported. That in some ways, that's actually a, a good segue into um, uh, the thing that I was going to talk about regarding internet access in Vermont, because you know we started off by talking about things that Vermont was doing right. Although, um, you know, for for the the program that I, I want to talk about is actually the people that happen to be in Vermont more so than being enabled by Vermont. So I I would love to talk to you about Vermont, Chris, because I know uh, Burlington, Vermont, was kind of one of the early leaders in community-owned broadband networks um, with a city-owned electric company that was able to go into broadband. Um, I know that not everything turned out the way that folks hoped there, and I'm curious, have they been able to make something of that anyway? Burlington is a, has a special place in my heart because uh, the first case study I worked on when I came to ILSR was about Burlington, Vermont, which at that time in 2007 was doing very exciting things. Uh, in fact, a municipal municipal fiber network that was in a city that had an electric department, but because of the kinds of infighting we often see in bureaucracies, the electric department had nothing to do with the fiber project. Uh, later mayor, um, several years later, um, basically, I would say destroyed the project. Um, others would say that, that Burlington Fiber had some problems already even before that relating to how it was uh, built in a costly manner to provide incredible benefits, but in a way that, that would have been very difficult for it to become financially feasible, even if it was well run. So Burlington actually went from being in some ways a role model to being uh, a strong disappointment. Uh, for those of us that would like to see municipal networks, although within Burlington, the results were also mixed in the sense that uh, it had a lot of debt and it was not able to pay back all of its debt. It had to break a contract with Citibank, although um, Citibank being a huge, nasty company that didn't properly review its, its lending, I don't feel particularly bad for them. But at any rate, it, it created some economic hardship in the city's budget because of bad decisions that were made, uh, is now being privatized, but has helped really help local businesses and local residents with lower bills and much better services. So it's a, it's a mixed bag on the whole in the end. But one, one thing I'm curious about, Chris, with the Burlington example is that I think it's held up among some as a real challenge in terms of the way that the financials played out for the city. But on the other hand, that's in part because I, I feel like these community-owned networks are often treated a little bit differently from other city-provided services where they're expected to make money on their own and not necessarily be paid for out of you know general fund tax revenues. Is that true? 
It's a really good question. Um, you know, I think if you look at municipal water departments and municipal electrical departments, they are expected to pay 100% of their own costs. And they have, um, in fact, monopoly service territories often in order to make sure that that happens. Um, now, with municipal broadband networks, they are also typically expected to pay 100% of their costs. And they're often built when they're built in a citywide fashion with um, you know, an expectation that there will be a lot of borrowing and that will be paid back entirely with the, the cost of the network. Um, there, there are some communities, including in western Massachusetts and Colorado, um, Michigan now, where communities are saying – we're going to build networks like we build our roads, which is to say they are partially funded by user fees. Um, and in the case of a network, would be overwhelmingly funded by user fees, but not entirely, which is to say that a city government might subsidize a network with uh, some other form of taxpayer dollars in the way that we do our roads, because our roads create all kinds of indirect benefits, spillover benefits, um, and we we can't really recover those directly. So we just fund them out of the, the tax base. Um, but I want I want to make sure that we get to the, the thing that I really wanted to talk about in Vermont. Yeah, well, I was going to say, Chris, maybe instead of making you talk about the thing you didn't want to talk about, we could ask you about what you were interested in talking about in terms of community networks in Vermont. Oddly enough, it was a really good setup to get into this because the people or one of the people in particular, Tim Nolte, who was behind the Burlington Telecom uh, network when it was doing really well and was pushed out by the mayor who I would say sunk the project, um, he went on to form East Central Vermont Fiber Network called EC Fiber. And that's a project that looked for federal lending in the stimulus program, didn't get it, um, and went on to issue debt to anyone who wanted to purchase it. Basically, uh, people who believed in the project, they had a number of funders step up, and that's gone on to broaden very, very widely. And they started building a network that's now connecting people in more than 25 towns, including I don't, I don't remember how it is off, uh, off the top of my head, but a not insubstantial number of towns uh, entirely from the, uh, for every resident within the community. Um, it's a nonprofit approach, and these communities actually share ownership in it. Um, that's been an incredibly successful project, full fiber optic network. It's incredibly exciting. That's actually led to state legislation that allowed other communities to aggregate their communities together and form communications union districts. I have to be a little cautious with that because like other states have local improvement districts or local utility districts or special improvement districts. In Vermont, it's called communication union districts. Chris, that reminds me of work that you've done in other states where you have particularly successful cities or communities that have done uh, community-owned networks, but then are not often allowed to expand into surrounding communities that would like to take service. Yes, that's definitely an issue in, in a lot of states because the, the big incumbents don't want the competition and they certainly don't want a successful network that brings competition to expand easily. So in Vermont, one of the things that we find is that, you know, Burlington certainly will be able to expand and actually under the private ownership, uh, which remains much more community focused than anything like Comcast or Verizon would do, uh, they will be expanding to nearby areas. Um, but the rest of Vermont that's not in Chittenden County there where Burlington is, it's hard to build a municipal network at the scale you're talking about, 2,600 people. You know, for a municipal network, you're often looking at 10,000 people, 20,000 people as kind of a minimum. There have been success stories that are smaller than that, but it's, it's much harder. So this brings those people together and allows them to, um, to create that scale, um, you know, by forming their resources together, basically. And there's another project uh, in central Vermont that's um, taking off on that. It's interesting that that came about because uh, some citizens sort of stepped in and took a leadership role 
role created a model and that the, the state policy came later. The state policy was really responding to something that was happening from the bottom up. One of the things that I've noticed when I visited Vermont and doing work there over the years is that there's an incredible civic infrastructure there. There are lots of community organizations, uh, you know, not just like formal kind of statewide nonprofits, but also just local grassroots groups. People organize, uh, put together meetings, do things really, there's a, there's a lot of like social and civic capital, um, it seems that, that exists in that state. Um, and it, it, it strikes me that if we were to go looking, we would probably find that a lot of the good policies that have come out of the state have really arisen that way more than anything else um, and is a reminder that democracy works best from the bottom up. Yes, I absolutely agree. Um, I don't want to I don't want to say too many negative things about about Vermont's state government um, because I think that they have learned from this. I we had a lot of frustration over the years in that we felt that you know uh, some of the bigger providers like Comcast and others had too much control and that the governor was very influenced by the telephone company which had been Verizon then was sold to a company that went bankrupt a few times and has generally done a miserable job of delivering service but nonetheless seemed to have a lot of sway over the uh, public service commission and the governor's office um so you know but nonetheless the 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 bureaucracy of the state government and the the governor i think they have learned and and they're looking at at this approach and thinking wow this is this is pretty good and so some of the state subsidy programs to build infrastructure are going um to ec fiber and may be available then to other uh, projects like it but it certainly was a was a slog to get there one of the things that i've really loved about vermont and getting to know it is this is this public meeting, the the town meeting day, where they, they talk about these things. And a lot of these votes have to happen at town meeting day, where people come together face to face. It's a reasonable number of people. Many of them know their families and things like that. You know, it's kind of, it's in some ways an idealized version of uh, what we think of with New England direct democracy and, and that sort of thing. So that's inspiring. Um, but the other piece of it is, is that a lot of times these people are very fiscally conservative. And, and I think sometimes people get a wrong picture of Vermont because it is a very progressive state in many ways. Um, but many of the conversation that I've seen happen are about how to make sure that you're really being uh, fiscally conservative and fiscally responsible and not overpaying for things, which is, I think, one of the reasons that the, the Burlington Telecom problems really rippled across the state and may have harmed some other efforts because uh, people took it really seriously. Um, and so I'll just, and I don't know if either one of you has seen that, um, but I, I don't think of this as a state that, that raises taxes, um, you know, um, you know, very easily. They, they have strong fights about it. Well, that's exactly what led in part to the uh, to Act 250 being adopted was a recognition that sprawling development is actually very expensive for governments. You know, when you're providing services uh, across these big sprawling developments and you have sort of new development coming in and then old development being left kind of idle or half used, when you look at the cost of the infrastructure and the public services for that, it's far more expensive. And so part of what drove 
uh, Vermont to have a, a sort of sharper land use policy was a sense of like, we can't afford that. We have to be smart about our dollars. And that means we have to make smart decisions about what's going to be the durable kind of development that's going to last well into the future and be efficient in the sense that we're going to get a lot of uh, value out of it economically for what we have to put in in terms of, of infrastructure. So I think that's absolutely right. The state, you know, you're right, it has this rep- reputation as being very liberal, but um, you spend time there, you recognize that a lot of it is actually very conservative in a very you know historic sense of what conservative uh, means. Uh, so as we as we're getting ready to wrap up here, I just wanted to note that I've tried to really keep it brief in an overview of the what's happening in Vermont, but we've done a, a really good job documenting it on our muninetworks.org website. That's M-U-N-I networks.org. Thanks to Lisa for doing a lot of writing about what's happening there. So if you really want the details, you should check that out. But I want to end with a, a question to Stacy because I've been thinking about this, you know. ILSR, the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, was formed specifically out of the idea that if you wanted to be locally self-reliant, you didn't have to move to Vermont. (laughs) We we want to celebrate Vermont, and they're doing a lot of things we should learn from, but we want to say that you can do these things in Portland, Maine, in Minneapolis, in St. Paul, Minnesota, in, in, in much larger places. So I wonder if you can just reflect on that a little bit. Yeah, I think that what's interesting, this whole last part of our conversation about the idea that this has really been bottom up, and it's not that there's something magical about the state government being enlightened so much as it is that citizens have really driven this process, and the good things that have happened in the state, it really speaks to the importance of, of kind of hands-on democracy and, and the role that we all have in that. And I think I also want to say that, you know, while there's something about a small place, like a state government in a, in a state the size of Vermont is very accessible to people in a way that's maybe not true in a bigger state, that cities can also work this way, that what you can do at at the neighborhood level and the accessibility of your city council and the power that cities have uh, is also right there, you know, for the taking, for people organizing and getting hold of. So I think the lessons here really can apply in any kind of geography. I just want to make a plug for us to call this podcast up episode, There's Nothing Magical About Vermont. (laughs) (laughs) In praise of Vermont, where nothing magical happens. (laughs) Well, this has been a great conversation, and I appreciate uh, my colleagues John Farrell and Chris Mitchell for joining us today. Uh, I want to end the show just by asking if you guys have any uh, reading or watching recommendations for people. John? I've been watching a lot of videos about how to tile, uh, which I've been doing the past couple weeks. But in honor of Mother's Day, my mom has recommended the book to me, Democracy in Chains, uh, as a great overview of the power of corporate concentration and the challenges that it poses to democracy. So I think it's uh, good to think about, and it's good to feature a state like Vermont uh, at a time in which uh, there are a lot of other forces arrayed against doing things the right way. Mine is is a little different vein. Um, the uh, Altered Carbon series, um, both uh, the three books. Well, um, there's many books. I haven't. I've only read the three of the Takeshi Kovach um, series um, by um, Richard Morgan. Um, but it was a it's a series of sci-fi on Netflix now too. And the three books are incredible and mind blowing and feature adult content. So um, I'll just say this: some people have criticized it for bringing a little bit too much Game of Thrones sex 
nudity, violence to um, to a sci-fi series. Um, but as I as I've said to a few people, um, in a future in which there's very little consequence for our action and people can basically kind of be rebooted, um, I actually think there's maybe too little sex and violence based on what I think of the human uh, character. But I found the books to be incredibly engrossing and very very good read um, for sci-fi. So if anyone's looking for that sort of thing, um, highly recommended. What was the title of that series again? Uh, Altered Carbon uh, is the, both the, the first book in the series with that character and then the title of the Netflix series. And the book Democracy in Chains that John recommended is by Nancy McLean. She's on a speaking tour right now, and I actually just heard her speak uh, a few weeks ago here in Portland, Maine, and she was terrific. So if you have a chance to catch up with her that way, uh, I also recommend that. Thank you all for tuning in to this episode of Building Local Power. You can find links to what we discussed today by going to our website, ilsr.org, and clicking on the show page for this episode. That's ilsr.org. And while you're there, you can sign up for one of our newsletters and connect with us on social media. And once again, please help us out by rating this podcast and sharing it with your friends. This show is produced by Lisa Gonzalez and Nick Stumo-Langer. Our theme music is Funk Interlude by Dysfunction Owl. For the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, I'm Stacey Mitchell. I hope you'll join us again in two weeks for the next episode of Building Local Power. 